This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, uh, when this symposium was first being uh, planned, I said, sure, I'd be happy to talk about behavioral ecology and look at um, uh, mating systems, that sort of thing. And uh, then a couple of uh, months later, I received another email saying that I would be talking about behavior and ecology. And I immediately began to hyperventilate <laughs> because everything falls under behavior and ecology. Um, for example, bipedalism seems like the kind of thing you'd address through anatomy, physiology, genetics perhaps. But all that started with a behavior that was probably driven by an ecological shift. Uh, standing to peer over the grass or wading in lake margins, uh, standing vertically to reduce exposure to the sun, uh, or picking low-hanging fruits. And, of course, there's my inspiration for today, a few low-hanging fruit. <laughs> After I calmed down, I realized that everything has this problem, all of the, the domains. Uh, everything's connected to everything else. As Tinbergen pointed out, to fully understand any trait, you need to know what causes it at the level of nerves, hormones, cellular mechanisms, uh, how it develops during the lifespan, the evolutionary history, and finally, its current utility or adaptive function. And this is where the action typically is for evolutionary behaviorists using what's called the phenotypic gambit. The assumption that we can look at the function, that is, how something influences reproductive success, without worrying too much about the other questions. And my goal today is to show that uh, while this is a very useful approach, it can cause some significant problems. So here's a list of some 70-plus human traits that we'd like to understand, uh, taken from Carter's Matrix of Comparative Anthropogeny. Uh, there's no way to do that in 14 minutes. Instead, I want to focus on uh, some broader issues, mainly having to do with behavior, though I'll touch lightly on ecology. My underlying goal is going, to be ask, is going to ask about the intersection of folk ideas of instinct with our understandings of behavior. Necessarily, this is going to be very superficial. Please bear with me. The term instinct is not very precise, but the term often suggests an underlying genetical basis. It would be a behavior that results in some fashion from selection. One common idea of how an instinct might uh, operate is that it's a gut feeling. Now, a lot of people uh, mock the president when he said that, but this is a, not un, at all uncommon for scientists to talk about uh, things in this terms as well. Perhaps it's a shorthand. Maybe it's not a shorthand. Because it turns out that bacteria living in our digestive system, our so-called gut microbiome, which is number seven on the ecology list on MOCA, uh, may in fact influence behavior. A number of bacteria produce either neurotransmitters uh, including dopamine and serotonin, uh, or their precursors, such as tryptophan. And these can have effects on the brain either directly via the vagus nerve or indirectly by the systemic uh, increases in those precursors. In this uh, recent paper, the authors showed that lactobacillus ruteri can reverse social deficits that are in mice with autism-like symptoms. And I don't want to go into whether the model's a good one or not, but the, it, you get a behavioral change, a social behavioral change. Uh, this happens by stimulation of oxytocinergic systems in the brain and doesn't work if the vagus is cut. Exactly what the bacteria produce and how it affects the vagus isn't known. Finally, it's not known if there is a functional explanation at all 
let alone what it might be. The active agent in this might just be bacterial waste. Now that we're thinking in terms of what an evolved behavior might be, I'm going to look at a very problematic sort of behavior. Sexual coercion in humans is incredibly complex. Uh, Just defining it to everyone's satisfaction could take the rest of the day. For comparative purposes, behaviorists uh, use a definition given by Smuts and Smuts. The male use of force or its threat to increase the chances that a female will mate with the aggressor or decrease the chances she'll mate with a rival at some cost to the female. Among chimpanzees, there's almost no forced copulation, what we would call rape, but males regularly attack females outside a reproductive context, and it's been shown that the females, the attacked females, are later more likely to copulate with the attacker than with another male. Um, The interpretation is that the male is using violence to condition a female so that she'll not resist him. Sexual coercion happens in both humans... And chimpanzees. What's funny about this? I didn't agree. Okay. Uh, it happens in both humans and chimpanzees. It's not been reported in any form in bonobos. Male gorillas don't physically coerce or attack females, but they do threaten them. And given that males are twice the size of the females and the females aren't stupid, that probably is functionally similar to chimpanzee attacks. Among orangutans, forced copulations are not at all uncommon. Outside the great apes, though, coercion of either sort is vanishingly rare in primates. The simplest way to interpret this if you're a biologist is through parsimony. Uh, a trait arose in an ancestral ape it was secondarily lost in bonobos. But, and I can see I'm following on Tetsuro's footsteps here. Uh, here's a pair of dolphin that Jeff Jacobson photographed cavorting next to his boat. And this, all, this looks great. This is a beautiful scene. If you look a little closer, though, note the uh, pink down there in the uh, lower right. That's a penis. This sexually excited male is leaping onto the blowhole of the other individual, uh, interrupting his or her breathing. Whatever happened subsequently happened underwater. But what has been observed, and this has been observed by multiple uh, observers in a couple of different species, uh, is fully consistent with sexual coercion of some kind. Now, I could have just talked about bottlenose dolphin in which sexual coercion is well established, but I want to encourage work on other delphinids so we get a better comparative handle on this. In any case, one interpretation could be that the sexual coercion trait, uh, quote-unquote, arose independently in the great apes and the delphinids. But another, and the one that I lean toward, is that there is no trait in any important biological sense. Uh, There's no trait in any important biological sense. The behaviors are just a consequence of learning in large-brained, long-lived animals. Bonobo males don't learn to do this because females uh, are cohesive and form alliances and are well able to defend themselves. Just focusing on the phenotype, the uh, current utility, risks us concluding that there is a trait there when perhaps there is not. Okay, I'm not going to make it through the list, establish that. Uh, I want to take a look at just an example here of uh, long-range transport of materials, such as this barge loaded with logs. The thing is, uh, Hugo here is carrying a twig to a termite mound that he can't see at the point when this uh, photograph was taken. And uh, he's, that's all the, the heavy-duty conceptual work. The rest of this uh, is just elaboration. <laughs> so if we eliminate all the, the cultural and uh, elaboration sort of things from this list. Gets us down to just 46. 
of which nearly half can be glossed as prosocial. And there's a shortcut to our thinking about prosocial behavior the domestication syndrome, and the idea that humans have self-domesticated ourselves. Darwin was onto this first. He noted that while some features shared by domesticated animals make sense, lowered aggression, uh, for example, others don't. Shortened faces, juvenile behavior in adults. Uh, and humans share some of these features, including increased social tolerance, peacefulness, tameness, about which I'll say more later. Current interest in the syndrome stems from work on the... Um, experimental domestication of silver foxes in Russia. If you're not familiar with that, you should check it out on Wikipedia. I'm not going to try to go through all this. Uh, don't worry about it. I just want to make sure that if you're interested in the evolution of human behavior, you have a look at some of these uh, papers and these concepts. The key point for today is that attempts to understand this domestication syndrome, the seemingly independent traits like floppy ears or reduced forebrain, using the phenotypic gambit, got nowhere for more than 100 years. But insights gained from the silver fox experiment led to a focus on proximate mechanisms that may explain the syndrome. In an important paper, Wilkins et al. suggests that when tameness was favored by selection, what actually got changed was the embryonic development of the neural crest. And uh, that has a knock-on effect on a wide variety of tissues that are uh, derived from or influenced by neurocrest cells. Maybe the idea is correct, maybe not. Beautiful stories have been slain by ugly facts before. Uh, but taken together, these two ideas, that there's a domestication syndrome uh, of behavioral, anatomical, and physiological traits in which only some have been selected for, and that humans have self-domesticated uh, ourselves, offer a new way to look at the origins of our prosociality. Having talked about prosociality, a little U-turn. We exhibit a lot of prosocial behaviors, but we also uh, can do some extraordinarily nasty things. And so can chimpanzees. Mike Wilson and his colleagues have reviewed lethal aggression in uh, chimpanzees, found that it was observed or suspected in 15 out of 18 studied communities. Most is intercommunity, likened to warfare in humans, uh, but also happens within communities. And the pattern of who kills whom, where, and when supports adaptive explanations. Uh, killers tend to gain reproductive benefits in terms of territory, food, and mates. The fact that humans and chimpanzees exhibit similarities in this suggests a shared evolutionary history. I emphasize that in chimpanzees, the probability of lethal aggression varies with ecological and demographic circumstances. They're no more compelled to go out and kill than we in this room are. And hopefully that's not much. There's long been a debate as to whether human nature is aggressive or peaceful. Recently, Richard Wrangham uh, has argued for a resolution to the debate on the grounds that from a biological perspective, uh, from a biological perspective, aggression is not in fact a single trait, but has two forms that are distinct at behavioral, hormonal, and neurological uh, levels. The notion that proactive and reactive aggression offer, differ in important ways is not new. Wrangham has pulled these together, uh, the, the proximate data together, uh, in a way that can clarify the distinction um, uh, between the, the, uh, the, patterns, sorry, the patterns among humans, chimpanzees, and bonobos. It turns out that we exhibit far less reactive aggression than the apes. We are highly prosocial. We're tame, perhaps as a result of self-domestication. But we share with chimpanzees a propensity for proactive aggression, including, perhaps, uh, proactively killing individuals who showed excessive reactive aggression, using proactive aggression to foster self-domestication. Well, there's nothing obligate 
about chimpanzee lethal aggression, there's a tendency to regard it as natural in the sense of presented with competing neighbors. Naturally, that's what they do. And we end with this phenotypic gamut. We don't look much beyond that functional level to try to understand precisely what it is we share with chimpanzees that makes both of us respond to uh, analogous situations in similar aggressive strategies. Is there a gut feeling to attack? What are the proximate factors involved? Yukimaru Sugiyama has studied this small, isolated group of chimpanzees in Guinea uh, for many years, and uh, they're quite isolated. He was very surprised in the early days when a strange male chimpanzee wandered in and joined his uh, study group, spent 20 days in the group, apparently, based on DNA testing, fathered an infant, and then left. This is something that doesn't happen with chimps. Sugiyama's interpretation is that because this group is isolated, it had no negative history with uh, other groups, and they didn't grow up knowing that you couldn't trust strange males. So they were okay with it. They were, able to, they were able to interact peacefully. Now, I should note that a lot of primatologists, this is so unlike what's been seen elsewhere, a lot of primatologists uh, either ignore or dismiss this account, but I think it holds a key to that question about the proximate factors behind lethal conflict. In one version of the story of King Arthur, he and his army met the usurper Sir Mordred at Salisbury Plain, and they began to negotiate a peace. While Arthur and Mordred were talking, a poisonous adder, down here in the lower left, lower right, I guess, uh, a poisonous adder snake crawled from under a rock near one of Mordred's uh, guards. The guard reflexively drew his sword, killed the snake. Arthur's men misinterpreted the gesture, and the battle went on. Arthur and Mordred died. So it goes. The thing is, given the excitability of chimpanzees and tensions that are inevitable during contact with unfamiliar individuals, <laughs> sooner or later, as if you didn't know, uh, sooner or later at any given site, there's bound to be uh, an incident of some kind. The next time the groups meet, that incident is of a historical precedent. You can easily see how this uh, uh, hostile intergroup relationships that foster adaptive lethal aggression virtually wherever chimpanzees have been studied, could, repeat could, stem causally as much from historical events as from any instinct. I'm not suggesting lethal aggression is not functionally adaptive or that it's not natural in some sense, but that precisely what is meant by natural is a very complicated thing, and all four of Tinbergen's questions need to be answered before we can claim to understand it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.